If you have your Bibles, Redeemer family, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. And if you're visiting with us, we're making our way through Paul's epistle to the 1 Corinthians. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the church as a beautiful community that actually can handle conflict. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you all. Why not rather suffer? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for your word and thank you for receiving our worship through Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we can all approach this text with a measure of sorrow and also a measure of gratitude. Sorrow because, if we're honest, we have at times let our passions, as James reminds us in James 4, get the better of us, where we quarrel and fight and slander because we are covetous. And Lord, it's also a measure of grace because you tell us that all of our sins have been nailed to the cross of Christ and that you have pardoned us. Father, I pray that as we unpack this word that you will indeed make us uh, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. Make us peacemakers, Lord Jesus. I pray this for your glory. Amen. So a few weeks ago, the defending champions of the NBA, the Golden State Warriors, made the news for the wrong reason. Two of their star athletes had conflict, which resulted in one punching the other. And it gained in momentum because someone actually released video footage of the incident. Steve Kerr uh, talks about a time when he and Michael Jordan played together for the Chicago Bulls and they had conflict and Michael Jordan punched him. Conflict gone wrong. Conflict that makes us do crazy things. Patrick Lencioni has written numerous books on teams and leadership and he says in his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he says, conflict will be a part of any and every team. All great relationships, the ones that last over time, 
require conflict in order to grow. This is true in marriage, in parenthood, in friendship, and certainly business meetings. But it's not just the world and teams and companies and the Golden State Warriors, right, that, that have conflict. If you actually read your Bible, over and over and over again, you will read of believers in conflict. Think about Adam and Eve. Think about Cain and Abel. Think about Abraham and Lot in conflict over land. Or Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Or Jacob and Laban, or Joseph and his brothers, or the two prostitutes who come to Solomon and they both are saying that this is my child. You see conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, conflict between the disciples and themselves, conflict between the disciples and others, conflict between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark, conflict between Paul and Peter because Peter withdrew from Gentiles when Judaizers showed up, conflict between Onesimus and Philemon, conflict between Jew and Greek, that, that it's not just the world that has conflict with one another that God has put it in the scriptures where God's people are often in and near conflict. And James tells us that what's usually at the root of conflict, what usually is at work when we're quarreling and fighting, it's our passions are at war within us. We desire and we do not have, and so we murder, we covet, and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. James has sort of given us a window into what can be going on in the hearts of even believers when we fight. Should it surprise us that conflict comes and knocks on the door of this church and how we handle it makes all the difference in the world. Conflict left unchecked can cause us to do regrettable things. The world digs in, it severs ties, it gets even, it throws punches, it even goes to court over everything. But for Christians, there's a better way. And that's what our passage is about. Two brothers are not handling their conflict, their conflict is handling them. And notice that Paul doesn't say there should be no conflict. I think Paul knows to be a believer, living amongst believers, you will enter conflict. But, but Paul's issue is how they're handling it. And we would do well to tune in. Now, before we get into the passage, I do think much nuance is needed. And here's what I mean. That it's, it's easy if you only read this one passage to draw the conclusion that there is never ever a time when Christians ought to be in a courtroom, but that can't be the case for several reasons. First, Paul never intended for Christians to isolate ourselves from the world, never. He just said that the last time we were in this passage. If that's your posture, then go live on the moon, right? But that's not what Paul says. 
Furthermore, God is a God of justice. He cares about righteousness. And when crimes are committed, he cares about justice. God knows that our world tilts towards the powerful and the wealthy. And so God himself raises up judges and lawyers. That Christians should be prosecutors. Christians should pursue degrees in the practice of law, but we do it because God is a God of justice, and God cares about righteousness. Second, Paul himself wrote Romans. I mean, think about Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. No authority exists except from God. Those that do exist have been instituted by God. Rulers are not a terror to those of you with good conduct, but those with bad. He, speaking of the magistrate or the judges, they are servants of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The same Paul who writes this wrote Romans 13. Consider Paul's own life in the book of Acts. Did he not appeal to Caesar? They were mistreating him. They were beating a Roman citizen. And Paul finally says, I appeal to Caesar. Now notice Paul doesn't take a brother to court, but he does use that appeal and the court system to advance the gospel. And fourth, there are instances in which we should go to the courts. If you access our child protection policy, which is on our website, you'll notice that if you witness child abuse, that you have the responsibility to do something. Our policy demands that in accordance with Mississippi Code 43-421-353, that you call the child abuse hotline first, and then you call our child safety team so that the session and that team may respond accordingly. But notice the first call is not to the church. It's to that department and it may land people in court. You see, the church has often done things wrong with this passage, where we have tried to handle criminal things inside of here, where we have over-spiritualized things without understanding that if laws are broken, there is a place for the courts, and there is a place for this spiritual court to rule and to act. So when Paul writes this, you have to read this with a lot of nuance. All right, we, we good there? All right, now we can get into the text. Most of the conflict, and I'm going to say most with an asterisk there, doesn't need to be handled in the courts. Paul's belief in the gospel says that believers can handle that. Now, I want to look at two big problems, then we'll look at many elusive options, and then we'll look at this enormous ability for the church to handle conflict. So let's look at the two big problems in this passage. Paul, out of the gate, he says, one of you has a grievance against another, 
and they have gone to law before the unrighteous instead, the, instead of the saints. Now, Paul's language, look at verse 6, that, that there's a dispute between brothers and a brother, or, or brother and brother. This probably isn't flesh and blood brothers fighting. This more than likely is two Christians inside of the church in Corinth who have a grievance that Paul actually says it, 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 it escalates to a lawsuit and he actually calls it trivial. I mean, look at it. He actually says this matter is trivial. And so on the docket that day, the judge in Corinth would have seen Christian versus Christian. One Christian is a plaintiff. One Christian is a defendant. Now, here's the thing, like, we don't know what the matter is. Paul just calls it a grievance. And I think this is actually good. We can speculate, is this a land dispute? Did someone promise to do work and the quality of their work was shoddy and, the, and they come to get compensated? And the one who was supposed to compensate them is like, man, I can't pay you until you do that. We, we don't know what the issue is, and I think that's actually good because we might be tempted to say, okay, only if this issue happens, only if it's this thing, then does this scripture apply? But that's what pa Paul is, he, he is vague for our good. We're supposed to be able to think and dream and insert certain matters that might really happen in this body and say the same thing, right? So I think that's the effect. So were promises not kept? Were responsibilities not executed? Have you been sinned against? Were the terms of your agreement violated? Or is this familial grievances? And more intimate relationships like marriage, where one spouse is not treating the other spouse in a manner that pleases the Lord. And that's going to be different from the divorceable offenses that Paul's going to talk about later. Abandonment, adultery. We're not talking about that. We're talking about those sphere, the sphere of misconduct that isn't right here. So, so could it be that, that these are brothers and sisters and, and someone is not keeping up with their deal of the arrangement in marriage and they, they see a 499 no fault divorce sign out on the corner and they quickly run to go get a no fault divorce? Paul is saying, no, Christians should be slow. Like, like very slow when we have conflict to go outside and, and, and trust these matters to judges and the court system out there. That's what Paul is saying. That is problem number one, that they are litigious. They, they, they just have to go and get everything settled out there. They have to be right. They have to get vindication. They just have to have rulings in their favor. That's problem number one. They're quick to go out. Paul uses cases, right? Problem number two, Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is a, a defeat for you all. Defeat for who? It's a defeat for the brothers of certainly, but it's also a defeat for the church. You see, they seem to suffer from a chronic condition of corporate passivity. Remember how they handled the brothers who was sleeping with his father's wife 
They did nothing. They were boasting in a new podcast. They were boasting in what new book they had read. And Paul's whole point is, you're boasting in your wisdom, and you're doing nothing about this over here. It's the same thing in chapter 6. These brothers are fighting, and not one person in that church stepped up and did anything about it. And perhaps they thought, man, that's not my business. Perhaps they thought, well, this is just kind of the way the world works. Surely it's okay to go to the judges outside of the church. And Paul says, no, that's problem number two. It's not just that they're fighting and going to court. It's that you're letting them. And I think we need to hear this. We see commercials and billboards telling us, call us, we'll get you justice. And it's free unless we collect for you. And Paul is saying, Christians, going to handle your business in the courts that isn't free is costing you something. It's costing you your witness. It's costing you the hope of godly reconciliation. It's costing you the ability to let other believers weigh in. If I had to sum up these things in four words, I would say the first thing Paul would have us to remember is be slow to go. Be slow, Christian, to go outside and entrust sacred matters to the unrighteous. Which moves us to our second point. There are many elusive options for most conflict between brothers. That's the second point. Many elusive options for most conflict between brothers. So, in the heat of conflict, there is evidence that we become different people. Now, stick with me. There's something called the prefrontal cortex, right? That's the front part of our brains. That's where reasoning happens. That's where logic sort of happens. That's where we rationalize and count the cost and can, can think clearly, right? So that, that's called the wizard brain. But in conflict, the wizard, the, the, that, that's the wizard brain. But in conflict, the lizard brain kicks in. That, that's the fight or flight reflexes. And so we move from sort of the front prefrontal cortex to the limbic system. And so the, the, the perception of threat, it activates the sympathetic nervous system and it triggers acute responses that help you bow up and fight or that cause you to flee. And so scientifically speaking, in the heat of conflict, that's why you're a different person, right? That's why you start to say stuff that you're like, man, if I was just a little more sane and patient, uh, I wouldn't have said that, right? Or I wouldn't have done that. Physiologically, we sort of become different, right? On top of that, you have what James talks about, that what's also at play is your own heart and the fall and how the fall affects you where we covet and we want to be right and we want our due 
And that creates this perfect cocktail where we dig in, we won't back down. We we don't care about these spiritual options, right? Let's just be really honest. Like when we're in the heat of conflict, sometimes the last thing you want to hear, but this is what the Bible says, right? I know I'm not the only one that, that you catch me. I got a few split seconds where we ain't talking about that right now, right? Why? It's my sin and it's my body reacting to conflict and a threat. Now, what usually has to happen when two people are at each other, right? Left to themselves, they will start throwing blows. Left to themselves, they will dig in. Left to themselves, I'm going to get you. No, I'm going to get you. Well, you call my lawyer. Well, you talk to my lawyer. Left to themselves, that's the cycle. And it usually takes someone outside of the conflict to say, man, y'all are acting like nuts. Someone on the outside. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is not in Corinth. (laughs) He is so far removed, but he sees everything that's happening as a perfect Christian mediator. And it's as if he's saying, hey, snap out of it. Do you not know that there are other elusive options on the table that right now in your conflict you can't see? Yes, that's what Paul's doing. They're elusive because they're in the conflict, but someone removed can see it clearly. What are the options? Paul actually thinks option one You don't have to go to court. And I know that sounds like a throwaway verse, but Paul actually feels like you don't have to go to them. Now, why would Paul say that? First, remember Jesus and the unjust courts that he got entangled in and how they treated him. That's number one. Think about Paul. Paul sat in jail for two years. Because one of those governors wanted a bribe. Go read, go read the book of Acts. You got Felix, and then you got Festus, and then finally Agrippa says, yo, he is innocent. If he, not, if he had not appealed to Caesar, y'all should have let this man go a long time ago. So Paul is like, hey, don't you understand? This ain't what you want. Not out here. One option is y'all actually don't have to go. The average Christian in Corinth has more spiritual wisdom than the unchristian judge with a lot of degrees. Why? Because you've been born again. The first option is you don't have to go to the courts. The second option, you have the option of caring more about the glory of Christ than than being declared right. Do you not remember what Jesus says? The world will know you are mine by your love. And love is patient. And love is kind. And it does not envy. It does not boast in being right. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. 
It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And what you're doing right now is the most unloving thing that can happen right now. You can care more about the glory of Christ than you do about being right. Another option, the accused, you actually have the option to concede and to make amends. Look at verse 8, y'all. Paul actually says it. No, let me look at verse 7, I'm sorry. He says, why not suffer wrong? Or why not be defrauded? And, and that's intentional. I think Paul is actually talking to both people. He's actually saying, if you are the one and charges are being brought against you because you are not paying for what you owe for services rendered, you actually have the option to be defrauded. And I don't mean, here, take your little old stinking money, right? That's not, the, that's not the attitude that Paul has in mind. The attitude that Paul has in mind is this. My brother or sister, if my business dealings are not impeccable, shame on me. I will be defrauded. You see, now notice the warning. We're going to get to this, but, but go down to verse 10. That's not an arbitrary list. So Paul's talking about, we'll, we'll deal with verses 9 through 11 together as a unit, but no, look at verse 10. Thieves, the greedy, or swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now read that back onto this section. So Paul is actually saying, yo, you can actually be defrauded because who don't make it into the kingdom? If you're trying to swindle or get over, you need to tap your brakes. The person who is being accused can actually concede. That's why the warning is against being greedy. The one accusing, the one who felt defrauded, actually has the option to suffer wrong. That's right there in verse 7. He could actually say, yo, you know, we're good. You don't owe me a thing. And I don't mean, man, just keep your little old money. Not, not that attitude, because that's how we'll take it. We'll actually do it without the right spirit. And what Paul is actually saying is, look, if my conduct is not above board, forgive me. The reason why you don't want to pay me, if there is an inkling of truth in me not keeping up my deal, then keep it. I trust that the Lord will provide. I value you more than I do the things I can get from you. That's actually on the table as an option. And if they can't arrive at this sort of working it out, either, either extreme or something in the middle, then they actually have the option of trusting the covenant community around them. You catch that? How do you view the church? Do you actually believe that if you get in situations where you can't 
have repair with a Christian? You don't have to walk away from the relationship. You don't have to take them to court. Another option, call a brother or sister and say, man, this right here is eating me up. And what about the covenant community? What option do they have? What option is on the table for them rather than sitting on the sidelines spectating and doing nothing? What option do they have to actually listen and to actually get in there with them and be a peacemaker? Where would that come from? It comes from Passover, remember? That if your next door neighbor did not have a lamb, It was your covenant responsibility to knock on their door or let them in your house. If they lacked, when the angel of death came through, they leaned on you. And what's happening right here? These brothers are lacking peace. And where do they lean? They're to lean on the body. Paul actually says in verse 2, the church is competent. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul actually thinks the church can handle it. Look at verse 5. There is someone among you wise enough to settle this dispute. Paul actually believes that the church can weigh in. And these are options, beloved, and they're elusive. And it's important in the midst of conflict to slow down and to remember these options. Now, that's a lot. You're like, Pastor L, what you mean I got to suffer wrong? What you mean I got to be defrauded? What do you mean that I can actually trust the people I sit next to to actually help me navigate conflict? Where does the ability and the power and the desire, where does that come from? So what I'm telling you is there are problems, and I'm telling you that these are the responses that Paul expects But here's the question, where is the ability to do what Paul expects of us? Where does that come from? And it's an enormous ability to handle most conflict between brothers. And you know the answer, Redeemer. (laughs) It comes from the gospel. The world can't do this. But we can So the enormous ability to handle most conflict, that's what I want to think about quickly. It's against this backdrop that we ought to hear Jesus' words in Matthew 5. I know our ladies are working through the book of Matthew, and I know some of our men are studying the book of Matthew. Well, this is where Matthew lays right on top of what's happening here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. Now, I actually want you to turn to Matthew 5, because I think this is how we're supposed to read Matthew 5. Turn to it quickly. Matthew 
So Matthew 5, right there at verse 9. So the Beatitudes, verses 2 through 12. And so go right down to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice. Now go right after the Beatitudes and look at what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You are the light of the world. Now, now read the Beatitudes in light of what he says. Do you want to know what it means to be salt on the earth? Do you want to know what it means to be the light of the world? You know what it means to be salt and light? It means that when there is conflict, you do something different. The world goes to court. The world stands on their rights. But you are being salt and being light when you take a different posture. When you work to bring peace. Lay that on top of what Paul is saying. He expects that either the plaintiff or the defendant or the corporate community, one of y'all can be a peacemaker here. If it ain't you, then it's you. And if it ain't you, then it's y'all. Now, here's the question. What does the power come from? Here's a drum I'm going to beat this entire book. What God commands and God expects of you, Christian, God has already enabled in Jesus. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when Paul could thank them for nothing, he breaks his traditional greeting where he begins to thank the churches for graces about them. But in Corinth, he does not thank them for that. What he thanks them for is right here in 1 Corinthians 4, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, and all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about what Paul is saying at the beginning. I give thanks because when the grace of God came to you, Jesus saved you, yes and amen. Jesus died for your sins, yes and amen. And when you want to take the earrings off and scrap and fight in conflict, Jesus died for that too, yes and amen. But his grace is more than just saving you from your sins. When the grace of God came, he gave you a new heart. and a new spirit, and a new will, and a new desire, and new power. We could say it this way, if we have zero desire to resolve conflict, zero willingness to die, zero willingness to be defrauded, the issue here isn't the conflict. The issue is it's the Spirit of God really inside of you. Because when the Spirit of God comes inside of you, it makes you, and I like King Jesus. And so Paul is actually saying, I'm rejoicing because you can be defrauded. You 
can suffer wrong and you can sort this out because of what Jesus has done. Now, what about the corporate community? Paul is calling them to the task. How does he know that they can handle this trivial matter? Look at what Paul says. Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, the do you not know that Paul uses twice? We think it means that when Paul came to Corinth and stayed 18 months, he preached to them about the gospel, but his gospel had an eschatological component to it. Paul wasn't just locked in on what Jesus did in the past tense. He died on the cross for your sins, yes, but that same gospel has future implications that it's bringing with it. And, and so when Paul discipled them, he didn't just stick with this little thing right here. And that's a big thing. His discipleship was all encompassing. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what Jesus did. Let me tell you where Jesus is. Let me tell you what Jesus will be like when he returns. And let me tell you who you will be like when Jesus returns. All of that is the gospel. All of that is the good news. And so Paul is like, have y'all forgotten? Y'all are going to judge the world. What? I thought you just said we don't judge the world. Not right now. We witness to the world. But when Christ returns, our relationship with the world will be changed as we are changed. And Paul uses a greater to lesser argument. So kids, let's just say mommy, right? Stick with me, children or youth. Let's say your mom is a physicist and she worked for NASA. And mommy sent rockets into space. That's what she did. And now she's a professor who teaches physics at the college level with a PhD. Here's the question. Can your mom help you with fourth grade math? Third grade math. Yes. If she has gotten a PhD in physics, she can handle third grade math. And that's what Paul is saying. Do you not know you're going to judge the world? Now, John Calvin, who actually went to law school twice in France, so I, tr I love what Calvin says about this. So he's a lawyer, and so he's commenting around this passage. He's like, what does Paul mean by we will judge the world? Calvin says that Paul means at least two things that we will participate in the actual judging of the world in some mysterious way. And it could also mean that as Noah condemned the world through his righteous deeds, as he trusted in the Lord and built the ark, God may use his good works to bring judgment upon those who were alive in his day. 
In other words, they're alive and they're, they're pleading before the resurrected Jesus. We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know. And what Calvin says, no, God might just say, Noah, come on up here. Talk to him, Noah. What were you doing when they were marrying and giving in marriage? They saw me every day, God. I was, I was making an ark. And so what God is going to do on that future day is summon Noah to the front. And when Jesus makes his ruling, it will be just. Right. So either one. Right. I'm, I'm tracking with him. Either we will somehow judge with Jesus or Jesus will use our good works. And here's the one man that just it made me cry. We're going to judge angels. And this is where we just quoted our confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed. And it says, from there, Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. But if you put 1 Corinthians 6 on top of that, it's not just Jesus judging the living and the dead. It's the saints will be judging the living and the dead and the angels. Now, chew on that. What it could mean, beloved. And I don't think Paul has good angels in mind. Hebrews 1 says the good angels are God's ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit eternal life. God commands these good angels and they obey. There is nothing to judge there. More than likely, he has the evil angels commonly known as demons in mind here. And these are the demons who sided with Satan, who malign and attack and harm God's people. Paul writes about them in Romans 8, angels and rulers and powers that try to separate us from the love of God in Christ. He writes about this in Ephesians, these cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in the present darkness and the heavenly places. We just sang this right in our song, when Satan tempts me and tells me of my guilt within, we, we, we just sang about, should all the hosts of death and powers of hell unknown put their most dreadful forms of rage and mischief on, we just sang about the demonic warfare in our songs. And here is what's going to happen at the end. He made us a little lower than angels. And the angels, the, the demons, they torment us. They tempt us. They fight against us. They steal our joy. They move us to sin and to not believe the gospel of the Lord. They assault us and afflict us. And here is what God is promising in this passage. One day you're going to be over them. And they will give an account for the way that they tormented our lives right here and now. And God will be pleased to summon you and our believers in his tribunal. And we will be over them and be a part of their judgment. Here's the question. If we're going to be judging angels in the world, that's physics. Our little disputes over money, over property, over rights, that's second grade math. The church 
can handle it because of who she is right now and who she will be on that glorious day. And what about the one who is being brought to court? Where is the power for that person to just die? To be defrauded with joy. Where's the power for that? It's because Jesus was defrauded for you. You would not be a believer if Jesus did not let himself be defrauded. It's that same spirit at work in your heart. He didn't deserve to die. He gave up his life. Does that not move us to count as rubbish all things? We can move towards peace right now by dying to the right to be right. What about the one who claims to have been wrong? Who is now going to court for repayment? You have the option of dropping charges and taking a loss and suffering wrong and being misunderstood. And where is the power for that? It's because Jesus had every right to champion his rights. And he didn't. He was brought before his accusers and he did not open his mouth. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Does that spirit not reside in you? Do you see, beloved? The gospel changes everything. Look around the room. You're looking at brothers and sisters who will judge the world and angels. We can help you settle disputes. We both can die, the plaintiff and the defendant. I want the gospel, not the world, to shape how we handle conflict. I'll close with this. Do you know the cumulative effect it would have on the world if Christians began to move, remove their cases against Christians from the dockets? Judges would have more time. Jurors would get to go home early. And if this happens cumulatively over time, then the watching world says, wait a minute, where are y'all finding peace? Where are you going? Where are you handling this? Where is this happening? And you know what we say? The gospel, the church, my savior, my king, we get the right to begin to witness to them out there because we choose to handle conflict the way the Bible calls us to right here. May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give our time to you. And uh, Father, if there is something that I've spoken that is not of you, I pray that it will fall on deaf ears. But I thank you for stretching us to think about who we are and who we will be and what the future holds for the saints. That changes everything. It changes us here and now. And so conform us to your image and likeness, King Jesus, for your glory, I pray. Amen.